Westmount, let's continue our blessed worship today on this resurrection day in prayer to our risen Savior, our Lord, God, and Father. O great God of our salvation, great was the joy of your chosen people, Israel, when you delivered them from Egypt through the Exodus. Far greater the joy, though, that day when your son crushed the great oppressor and delivered all of your people for all time. Today, this resurrection day, we remember that day when Jesus left the tomb, when Jesus conquered death and hell, when Jesus trampled all powers of darkness. Christ victorious is our great certainty. He is our triumph, our hope, and our king. Because of him, the claims of justice have been satisfied. Because of him, we have assurance of eternal life and eternal glory in him. What more could be done than has already been done, dear Lord? You are the resurrection and the life. Remind us of that today as we look to you. Renew our minds and unite our hearts in that great truth. In the name of our risen Lord, our Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Westmount, I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn in it with me to the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John, that's where we left off on Friday, Good Friday. Of course, now it is Sunday, Resurrection Sunday. John 11, it's a chapter we'll be in for our time together this morning. Of course, it is Resurrection Sunday, and as we mentioned on Friday, being a very different Good Friday, this Sunday is a very different Resurrection Sunday. It's a very different Easter Sunday with different things on your mind. Your plans, your calendar doesn't look the same, and as such, we think about the things that are off our calendar and as such are on our minds this Sunday, and that would be, of course, illness. Illness. Illness is on your mind today. Illness is on everybody's mind. Illness, wouldn't you say, is just about the focus of everything these past four weeks Every news item, every new number, every conversation, think with me, every single interaction, whether it's media or in person, is about illness. As such, you're watching a world respond to illness, and I would say this as if illness is something new. You're watching a world respond to illness and hearing, in fact, these words that this is brand new. You've heard that. You're watching a world suggest that we have never faced illness like this. And loved ones, I'm with you. I heard the same things this week. Medical experts over and over saying this is unprecedented. We're seeing something brand new these past three months. Uh, Civilization has never faced anything like this. And on and on it goes. Now I want to be clear this morning, church. I want to be clear. If, if we are talking about a new strain of coronavirus, a new strain of a particular virus, or some novel manifestation of it, if we are talking about a new way in which the whole world is shutting down, or if we're talking about a new resurgence of fear, and I mean widespread fear and panic, unlike 9-11 and unlike World War I or II, if we're talking about those new things, then yes, we could say that, that is new, that is new. However, what we cannot say is that illness is new. We can't say that. What we cannot say is that illness that spreads is new. And what we cannot say is that illness that leads to death is new. We can't say that. That illness is about as old as the earth itself. And we're not just talking here about historical plagues. We're not just talking about that. But from the Garden of Eden with a curse, 
illness has spread to every man since. So what seems to be the difference today with this illness, this COVID-19, why is everyone talking as if spreading illness or deadly illness is something new? Why is that the order of the day, the newness of illness? Why? Well, that is because humanity, and I would submit to you, Westmount, humanity, and in recent years especially, especially, and here in 2020, humanity has lived under a corporate growing denial of illness period. Humanity, by and large, has suppressed it. Oh, yes, it's there. It's been there. Humanity has paid little attention. Fallen humanity has lived under the growing illusion that they can handle illness. They've got this one. Modern civilization says we're bigger, we're better, we're stronger than any illness. We've got it. Modern thinking, then, as a result, looks at illness as an inconvenience. Is that not true? It's a pest. It's an annoyance. It gets in the way of day-to-day life. Yeah, a, a pest that disrupts daily routine, regular desires and indulgences. And that's why you feel it particularly when the world is on pause. This is the greatest of inconveniences. Up until this year, people haven't wanted to talk about illness at all. Isn't that striking? You haven't had illness on this scope until this year, at least being talked about. And that's because, corporately, we haven't wanted to face the reality of illness at all. However, along comes a grand reminder, like this virus, COVID-19. And it's a reminder for everyone that not only we will face illness... But here it is, the wave of sobering reality that follows, and it's this, that we cannot stop illness. We can't stop it. Ultimately, we cannot defeat illness. Listen to me, a medicine may keep it at bay for some time, or a particular kind at bay, but eventually some other form of illness will break your body down. Indeed, whether it's COVID-19 or as simple as natural causes, we will all get ill and die. Now we all, whether we like it or not, suppress it or not, we must face that truth because it's a truth for all men. And we all, whether because of this illness or some other illness later on, all of us will succumb to illness and die. And listen to me, no amount of toilet paper or Lysol is going to stop that. Nothing. We will die. Now I know what you're thinking at this point. Some of you are thinking, wow, and it's Easter Sunday. What kind of message is that? I understand that's not the kind of message you want to hear on Easter Sunday, is it? But I would submit to you already there, are we not? This is not the type of Easter Sunday you had planned at least a few weeks ago. And you might say you've had enough of bad news, right? You're probably saying that. I've had enough of bad news. I just want some good news. Well, listen, I do have good news to give you today. It's not a forecast on when this pandemic will be over. It's not my projection on when life will go back to normal, nor am I here to present to you some new drug that's in development that's going to fight COVID-19. I have none of that type of news at all. If you're looking for that kind of good news, which we may or may not receive one day, if, if that type of good news, if that is the essence of the good news that you're looking for, current news that avoids this pandemic and avoids the grave, then friend, might I remind you that really isn't true good news at all. Why? Well, news that simply prolongs the inevitable is not good news at all, is it? If we're all going to die eventually, if we'll all succumb to some form of illness, then there is no good news, COVID-19 or otherwise, vaccine or otherwise, to give. But what I want to suggest to you this morning, what I want to put before you this Easter morning, is what if there was good news that did defeat the inevitable? What about that news? What if good news that doesn't just spare life, doesn't just give you another chance to die later on, What if there was good news that didn't only spare life, but gave you life after the grave? What would you say to that kind of news? Today, I want to present you you that good news. Today, I want to show you someone, just like you and me, who became ill. 
Today we'll examine a real man that lived in real time in the first century. A time far less advanced than our time now. A man that lived in the Middle East with a family. He had two sisters and he lived in a real village in Bethany. His name is Lazarus. I want to introduce you to that man. Today we'll see Lazarus, that man, succumb to illness. He will contract illness and he will die. He will die like many are dying today. And today we will see that same man, listen, that same man who contracted illness and died, we'll see that same man live again, live again after death. That's right. Today you will see illness defeated. That is the good news that we will look at today. And today, no matter what brought you to be with us today, you will be faced with a question. And I said it before you now. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? Whether you've grown up with Jesus or you've grown apart from Jesus, the question remains the same for you. Do you believe this? Do you believe that illness has been defeated and life is possible after death? Let's return to the scene of illness that we were in on Friday, John 11. Let me just read the first few verses starting in verse 1. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sister sent him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of of God may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Lazarus is ill, gravely ill, ill enough that his sister sent for Jesus. Jesus receives word and his response, as we just saw, is worth our attention this morning. First of all, Jesus' response to this illness is nothing what you would expect. Not at all. Jesus says that Lazarus' illness, look at it firstly, doesn't lead to death. That's how Jesus responds initially. Secondly, he says Lazarus' illness is for the glory of God. And thirdly, he says Lazarus' illness is so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. That's quite a response. Not only is Jesus not concerned about the illness of someone that he loves, it would seem, but Jesus also suggests that something, the glorifying of God, will come of it. Now, if that response is uncommon, I want you to consider that Jesus gets word, and what does he do? When he gets word that the one he loves, Lazarus, is gravely ill, he gets word, and what does it say? He waits two days. He waits two days. Now, I understand we've already mentioned this on Friday, but listen, it is worth reviewing again for the sake of this morning. In this season of pandemic, when illness is everywhere, I want you to consider your response. If you got news that someone that you loved was ill, I want you to consider just for a moment how you would respond to the news if someone that you love fell ill. I mean, that's all the information you've been given. That's it. That not only are they ill, but they're gravely ill. I want you to think, what would you do? Would you, beloved, would you have confidence that that illness doesn't lead to death? Would you turn around and tell those around you when you got news, say, well, this illness doesn't lead to death? Would you be able to say that God will be glorified after it and Jesus Christ through it? Is that what you would say? And even more, when you receive word of your ill loved one, would you linger for two more days? Of course, you would not respond that way. Even more, I'd submit to you, you would not be able to respond the way Jesus does here. And why? Because you are powerless over illness, right? You're powerless over it. So if that's true of you and I, track with me. What does this response say about Jesus? What does this response say about Jesus? This kind of response is one of two things. It's either grossly insensitive, if not more, thoughts we dare not think, or 
Jesus is demonstrating a sovereign position over this illness, right? I mean, really, we have two extremes here. This response is in one of those poles. Either he's grossly insensitive or more, or he is demonstrating something over and above this illness. A sovereign power over this illness that knows, here it is, knows its means, the Son of God, and its end, the glory of God. And that is a power that must be, here it is, if we're on this side, it must be greater than death. It has to be greater than death. Why do we say that? Because as we find out, Lazarus dies. He does die. This is not a hopeful recovery thing where he makes it and he pulls through miraculously. No, Lazarus dies. And we're going to see that confirmed in a moment. However, before we see that, consider our power over death for a moment. I mean, a text like this begs us to give this examination. I want us to consider our power over death for a moment. Running to an ill loved one, as I just said, without delay, always gives you that sense of ability, does it not? Maybe you've been there. A loved one is ill. And just the sense of you running, that extra adrenaline kicks in. There's this feeling, what can I do? What can I do? But that sense, when you reach the deathbed, is smashed to pieces, smashed to pieces at the sight and at the state of your loved one and in the wake of death. I've been at a few bedsides as people have died, my grandparents and people in this church. I know what it's like to be staring death in the face and let me tell you something. There is nothing more powerless than staring at death. There is nothing you can do. They will die. They will die. Nothing cements our futility and powerlessness more than the reality of death. And that's what's going on today, beloved. Can I suggest that to you? People can ignore death all they want, but when it slams them in the face, they must react, and that's why you see panic. None of us have power over death, none of us, but Jesus, and here it is, Jesus' whole tone here, his whole tone in this account suggests that he does. He does. Some would say, and maybe it's you right now hearing that, you might be saying right now this Easter Sunday, well, you know what? I just can't believe that. I just can't believe that. I mean, dead is dead, right? Ashes to ashes, dust to dust. When you go on the ground, that's it. Maybe you're saying that right now. This may make you guys feel good, but that's it. I believe dead is dead. That's, I have faith in the ground because the ground is certain, you would say. And if that's you... Jesus has one last response in this opening section. Look at verse 14. One last response. He says this, Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. Amazing response from Jesus. So that you may believe. Lazarus is dead? so that you may believe, let's go to him. Now the skeptic at this point would say, well, what's the point? He's dead. Why go to him? I can't believe that. I can't believe that. Are you telling me something miraculous is going to happen? I just can't believe that because death is the end. I cannot believe anything else other than dead is dead. Friend, if that's you, I want to suggest to you this morning, you believe a lot of things in your life. You have a lot of faith in a lot of things in your life. You do. And things, can I submit to you graciously this Sunday morning, you believe a lot of things that are quite frankly very unreal. Maybe you believe in the origin of this world that it is an accident. And you know what? It takes a lot of faith to believe that everything around us, the order of this universe is an accident. Or that we just evolved. It takes a lot of faith to believe Something came out of nothing. Maybe you're one of the ones that believe that every single person is entitled to their own truth, right? That's your belief. Well, can I tell you something? It takes a lot of faith to believe in relative truth, that everyone has their own truth, and in some way, somehow, we're all going to get along with relative truth. What happens when relative truths collide against each other? Beloved, it takes a lot of faith to believe that. And it is true, all of us, you, believe in a lot of things that are quite frankly unbelievable. So I ask you this, 
Do you believe that the one who has the power to give you this life? Because listen, I think many would say, many skeptics would say, sure, I can believe in God. He created me. Sure, sure. If you believe in that miracle, the miracle of life, if you believe that he created you without a problem, do you believe then that the one with the power to give you life also has the power to give you life after death? Do you believe this? Well, Lazarus is dead. He's dead. And I thought Jesus said this illness would not lead to death. Wait a minute. Well, let's continue this account in verse 17. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. The Gospels, the New Testament, always gives us these details that are so important, like Nicodemus going at night, and the same in John 3. This is no small detail. It's not just to say that he was dead. He was dead four days. And why is four days important? Well, it was ancient lore and belief, especially in Jewish culture, that the spirit just hovered around the body for three days and that there was a chance, a chance that spirit may just go back into the body. But after three days, ancient lore believed that was it. When you hit the fourth day, mark it, it was impossible. If you hit day four of a dead corpse, there was just no going back. That's why the gospel writer is very clear he had been dead four days. Jesus, with that in mind, that scene of death is approached on the way. We continue in verse 18. Bethany, the village where they lived, remember, was near Jerusalem about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Look at that. Jesus, in one simple, powerful statement, clarifies that response that we saw earlier. Jesus says that death is not the end for Lazarus. What does he say? Look at it. He says this, verse 23, your brother will rise again. Your brother will rise again. If, Westmount, that is true, then Jesus must be about to demonstrate some sort of power over the grave because Lazarus is dead. Now hold on to that for a moment. We will be heading to Lazarus's grave. Before that, however, we need to consider one of his sister's comments here. This is a very insightful exchange that we need to look at, and it is Martha. Martha, Lazarus's sister. She states in verse 21, look at it, that if Jesus was there, look at this equation, if Jesus was there, then Lazarus wouldn't die. Now, there is so much we can say about that equation and how many people would ascribe to that kind of thinking. Just be there and then this won't happen. Now, that is interesting too, by the way. That suggests, look at it, that Martha ascribed power to Jesus. She did that. But look with me, she ascribed limited power to Jesus. Do you see that? She, she ascribes power to Christ, but it's limited. Power that's only operable in life while one is alive. It's interesting. In other words, Martha says, Jesus, if you were here while he was alive, then my brother would still be alive and he would be okay. But Jesus, now that you are here and he is dead, well, it's just too late. That's what Martha's saying. It's just too late. Now, Christian, I turn to you. We may, you may believe in Jesus, unlike others that don't believe in Jesus. We may believe in Jesus, but how often does our faith in Jesus look just like this? This is belief that's packed in the nice, polished, right theology, right? That's what this belief is. All the Bible answers, all the knowledge. Martha has, look at it, the right address. Look at verse 21. She correctly refers to Jesus as Lord. We looked at that in our class this morning, right? That's the right answer. That's the Sunday school answer. He is Lord. 
Martha even knows that the Son of God answers prayers. I mean, she's really on fire here. Look at verse 22. I know, I know that you answer prayers. I know that you respond. And Martha even has her eschatology. That would be her end times theology. I mean, it's bedrock. Look at verse 24. She knows that Lazarus, as a follower of Jesus, will rise again on the last day. She's got her future end times stuff all sorted out. Very good, Martha. Very good. Martha has the knowledge, and look at it, look at all the no's. She says, I know if you had been here, Jesus. Verse 22, I know we can ask Jesus. Verse 24, I know the last day, Jesus. Martha, with all the right knowledge, and listen to me, don't mishear me this morning, knowledge is important, very, very important. That's why we do what we did this morning. We have class, we have learning, we have all of those things, because knowledge is important. But here at this text, will certainly tell us this and show us this, knowledge is really powerless unless it is coupled with something else. And that is what Jesus zeroes in on next. Look at verse 25. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? That's the question he gives to Martha. What's interesting, he, he doesn't say, I'm the resurrection and the life. Whoever knows this, what does he say? I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes this. It's about belief. Martha, it's about belief. In just those two verses, look at it. Belief is there three times. In just two verses, that is where Jesus goes. Martha, you have all the knowledge. Yes, check. Well done, check. A plus. Knowledge oozing out of you. But Martha, do you believe this? Martha, devoted follower, the one I love, Martha, do you believe this? Do you believe this? Jesus says, Martha, Martha, do you believe that I am the resurrection? Beloved follower of me, Martha, do you believe that I am the life? This is not just about power. This is about position. This is who Jesus Christ is. And look at it again. He is the resurrection and he is the life. In other words, power over the grave. That's what resurrection is. Resurrection is once dead, now alive. Eternal life means you stay living forever. And that is who Jesus is. Look at his presentation here. That's who he is. And by the way, he's about to demonstrate who he is and give the proof and evidence. Not that he needed to. It's about faith, but he will give it. You will give it. That's who Jesus is, and it's only ever about who Jesus is. The question for Martha is, what do you do with Jesus? What do you do with him? And no, Jesus didn't say, beloved, as we pull all the insights we can out of this, he didn't say, I am a resurrection. I am a life. Jesus is not presenting himself as a really neat option amongst other beliefs. No, that's simple article. That's what the is. It means it's a pointer. It, it says there's only one. Whenever you say the, it points to one thing. It's saying clearly, pointedly here, Jesus is saying it is not about many resurrections and many lives, many roads or many options. You can have your truth. I can have mine. Jesus says pointedly, I am the resurrection. I am the life. In other words, Jesus says, I am the only one. I am the only fountain of life after death. Listen to me, this is belief that is not general. Believing in Jesus Christ is not this abstract out there belief. It's not giving time for Jesus. It's not attending something here and there. It's not even tuning in just to this today. That's not belief in Jesus. Belief in Jesus is specific. It's specific in believing in not just who Jesus is by name and by presentation, believing in faith on what he can do, which we will see in a moment. And Martha, Christian, we would say to us, you, Martha, Christian, you have followed me. Maybe for decades for some of you today, you followed Jesus. You know me, Jesus says to the Marthas here. You know me. But Jesus says what? Do you believe in me? Do you believe in me? Lazarus' sister, of course, we know Martha, those of us that have been in the church for a while. Who is Martha? She's the doer. She's busy, right? She's the one busy about the house. 
while her sister's the one at Jesus' feet. Martha is the busy one, the reasonable one, right? You can talk sense with Martha. Well, Martha's confronted with her faith in Jesus, and she's jolted to this in verse 27. She said to him in response, yes, Lord, there it is, I believe, finally. She doesn't just know, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. That, beloved, if you look at verse 27, is not only the right answer, but it is the right faith. That's the right faith. Yes, Martha says, I believe you are the Christ, the Son of God. Believing in him, that's it, believing in him and not just knowing about him is what leads to life beyond the grave. Martha, with her faith renewed, finds her feet and heads back to tell her sister Mary. Let's continue in verse 28. When she had said this, this is Martha, when Martha had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. When she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. And when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, and note this from Mary, her sister, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Does that not sound familiar? Like sister, like sister, right? If you had been here, he wouldn't have died. Yes, not just a busy sister, not just now a following sister, but a sister with a similar what? Faith crisis. A sister famous for sitting at the feet of Jesus. Many people would have bones to pick and criticize Martha in her doing, but listen, Mary demonstrates the exact same faith. Mary also implying, and get this, Mary implying in that statement limitations on the power of Jesus, the Son of God, if you would have been here. That's a limiter, if you would have been here. Now just step back for a moment and and consider the scene that Jesus is facing. This is so important, so important. I want us to consider what Jesus is looking at. This is not a funeral picture. Because people now will take this text and they're going to go in a different direction. This is not a funeral picture. Beloved, do you see this is a faith picture? And not just a glorious faith picture with everyone believing in Jesus. This, right, is a picture of faithlessness. Everyone putting limits on the Son of God. The disciples... Verses 1 to 16, we saw this on Friday. They had all kinds of questions, all kinds of limits on this. Martha, in the verses that we just looked at, and now Mary too, every single person Jesus encounters from the beginning of this chapter is in faith crisis. Is in faith crisis. All relying on sight, if you had been here. If you had been here, things would be okay. All relying on sight and not on faith. And it is in the face of that unbelief That faithlessness, not a funeral, in the face of faithlessness, in the face of unbelief, we see the heart of Jesus' emotion here. Let's continue in verse 33. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And remember, he's looking at tears that don't just say, oh, Jesus is here, everything's going to be okay, right? He's looking at tears that say, it's over. And he said, verse 34, 34, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him? But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? It's an incredible piece that we need to understand that takes us into the heart of our Lord here. Look again at verse 33. What is Jesus looking at? Is he looking at Lazarus' tomb? No, he knows how that's ending. No, look, he's looking at the people. Don't miss this, Westmount. Look at what Jesus, he's looking right at the people. He's not weeping over Lazarus. He's looking at his people and the weeping that his followers are doing. He's faced with weeping from his disciples that says nothing less than this. 
It is over. Lazarus is dead. There is nothing else that can be done. Can you imagine Jesus in the face of that? Weeping that says it's over. Here's the Son of God standing right there. And not only weeping in front of the tomb, but weeping in front of the Son of God. Weeping after Jesus specifically said, do you remember? We forget too. Verse 27, what did he say? That Lazarus will stay dead? He said, Lazarus will rise again. Yet they weep. Yet they weep. Beloved, hearing Jesus and not believing in Jesus is nothing new. It's not a new order of the day. The first century was replete with it. It was an illness that spread. Beloved, this is nothing less than wide-scale unbelief. And that is why, look at verse 33, that is why Jesus is deeply moved and his spirit is greatly troubled. And that is why in verse 35, look at it now, with these eyes, Jesus weeps. Don't miss this, those tears are not tears of sorrow for Lazarus. Jesus knows that Lazarus will not stay dead. There's nothing to cry over. In fact, he said in verse 11, look at it, Lazarus is only what? He's only asleep. No one cries over someone sleeping. The Son of God is not weeping here over a sleeping Lazarus that will rise again. No, those tears that you see Jesus weeping so pointedly in verse 35, those are not unlike the tears we see elsewhere in Jesus' ministry. Like the troubled spirit and tears over Jerusalem's unbelief. You find that in Matthew 23, verse 37. You remember? Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. What about the tears of anguish of the disciples' unbelief? Do you remember Mark 9, that famous account of the boy uh, that's possessed by a demon and the father? is like, if you can do anything, Jesus, do it. In other words, unbelief. Unbelief. Jesus' anguish, his troubled spirit, and the tears are no different to any of those accounts. And Jesus is not crying over the individuals afflicted in each case. He's crying over the response, which is unbelief. This is unbelief summed up in the disciples' question. Look at it in verse 37. If we doubted that it was unbelief, this cements it. Look at verse 37. Some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Astounding. Westmount, this is unbelief. This is the true illness in this scene. This is the illness. This is the contagious illness here. It's spreading fast. And how do you know it's spreading? They're all asking the same questions, whether it's Mary and Martha or the crowd. This illness doesn't require social distancing. This requires spiritual distancing. This is incredible contagion right here. Because it's moving through this village like the plague. Unbelief is spreading like wildfire. That unbelief is not lost on Jesus. Look at verse 38. Then Jesus, deeply moved again. Why is he deeply moved? Because of the unbelief, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. I love that. Just that picture of impossibility. It's a cave with a stone. Lazarus is dead. But he comes to it. He comes to it. Jesus, deeply moved by what he's seen, now looks to the tomb. It's as if in one swift move, note Jesus' movement here. As if he says, enough is enough. Enough is enough. Continue in verse 39. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha has something to say to that. The sister of the dead man said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Oh, Martha. Still practical Martha, right? Fussing over the details. What about the odor? Jesus, what about the odor? This is unreasonable. Jesus, even in the face of all these relapses and unbelief from those that are following him, he's still loving, he's still tender. Look at verse 40. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Jesus reminds Martha and all of us what the purpose of Lazarus' illness was. Look at it, the glory of God. That's what we see next. We just continue in verse 41. So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out. 
his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth, Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. A dead man is raised, life after death, from the only one with the power to do so. The one with the power to give life, to take away life, and to resurrect life. Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It is his glory that is displayed through this and the glory of God now in the face of this. Because it is merely the words of Jesus. Do you see that? Jesus with a word. It says, Lazarus, come out. I mean, you want to talk about power. There's no medicine here. There's no medicine at all. There's no clever getting around the virus. There's no distancing here. This is Jesus coming closer and saying, come out. Amazing. Lazarus is raised, emerges from the tomb, just as Jesus said he would. Lazarus' illness, as Jesus said, did not lead to death, but to life after death. And what else in the wake of this scene? The glory of God. That is illness defeated by the only one who can, Jesus Christ. Now there's one last thing here we need to touch on before we leave it. Let's not leave this story thinking that Lazarus avoided death, right? We don't want to do that. Lazarus avoided death. No. Sure, he was raised on that day. Lazarus was raised on that day as a divine demonstration in the glory of God by the Son of God. But beloved, you and I both know that Lazarus still died. His time on earth would come to a close at a future date. He didn't escape illness. It did take him eventually. In fact, many have said the poor man died twice. He died twice. None of us would want that. But an earthly death, here it is, an earthly death, even a double earthly death, is nothing on an eternal death. An eternal death. An eternal death that's a result of a very different type of illness. That illness, as we have seen in this text, is unbelief. That's an illness that leads to death, believe me, 100% of the time. The diagnosis for unbelief every time is death, is death, death after death. And unbelief spread not only rapidly in the village that day, but like any deadly plague, it spread beyond. How bad was this contagion? How bad was this coronavirus? Let's look at verse 45. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them, and we have to note some of them who saw what they saw that day, went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. Now at this point in the text, you would say, Well, here it is. They're going to bow down at the feet of Jesus because who has power over the grave, right? No, they're infected. Look at verse 48. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. That is astonishing, isn't it? That's simply astonishing. It's like the elephant in the room. The elephant in the room, you want to say, you're concerned about your place and your nation? Did you just hear and see what the Son of God, Jesus Christ, just did? You're concerned about your place and nation. And the answer, of course, is no. No, they are not concerned about Jesus, nor did they see what Jesus did because they are blind. Not physically blind, spiritually blind. They cannot see. They cannot see. This epilogue, if you will, tells you tells you that they saw and heard of that miracle. They saw and heard of victory over the grave, but they did not see it and certainly didn't receive it. What they are blind to in their illness is eyes to see truly Christ for who he is, the conqueror of the grave, the Son of God. What they are blind to, what they are suffering with, is a diseased heart to receive the Son of God who is glorified through this resurrection. And can I tell you that many suffer with this illness still today? It wasn't pacified in the first century. It raged through the centuries. And it is alive and well and rampant today, much more than COVID-19. As lives are turned upside down, you think about what we're in today, as helplessness and powerlessness is exposed, listen to me, it is amazing to me that hardened hearts continue to scoff 
As their world is turned upside down like a snow globe, they scoff at God. And not only that, if you watch very carefully, they continue to fear. Yes, they fear. Like the blind counsel here, afraid. And what are they afraid of? Tell me if this is not today, place and nation. More afraid of place and nation. Is that not what's going on today? More than the fear of the creator, the one who not only gives life here, but the same Christ, the only one who can give life after death. Friend, is that you today? Are you watching right now? Is that you? Are you in fear of life and nation changing around you? Is that your focus right now? That life and nation will change around you and you will lose that. Are you in fear of life never being the same? Is that your great terror as you put your head on the pillow that your life will never be the same? Are you afraid of losing your place in this life? Is that what you're afraid of right now? That you may die? Can I say to you, your fears, your focus, and your intention are all in the wrong place. If you've ever wondered why this virus is upon us, this illness, you have your answer right here in John 11. Right here. Right from God, the one who made you himself. From this similar scene where Christ uses an earthly illness to point to a spiritual illness. And it's summed up in verse 42. Remember this? Why? You would say, why Lazarus? Why COVID-19? Verse 42, so that you would believe. So that you would believe. Could it be, listener, that COVID-19 is upon us so that you would believe in Jesus? Could it be? Probably find yourself maybe startled that you're even watching anything on a Sunday morning. Could it be so that you would believe? And that is belief, by the way. Hear the text. Hear what these words have just said. Not mine, but hear the Bible. Could it be belief? And listen, belief is not knowledge. It's not knowledge. You may say, I have all kinds of knowledge. Martha had all kinds of knowledge. She would have aced the Sunday school exam. This is belief, listen to me, that acts on that knowledge. This is belief that doesn't just say, I know I'm a sinner. Doesn't everyone do things wrong? No, this is belief that acts on that and says, I repent of that. Because it's my way that has made my life a mess, not a virus. I've made a mess. I've turned my life upside down. I'm the problem, and I need to forsake of that, and I need to turn to Jesus. That's belief. Belief that doesn't just say, I know about Jesus. I want to add on Jesus. This is belief that acts and says, I'm all in for Jesus. I forsake everything else but Jesus. That's belief. And this is belief that knows and believes that your greatest problem, here it is, friend, this is what belief is. Belief that knows your greatest problem right now, April 12, 2020, is not coronavirus. Your biggest problem is your diseased spiritual soul. And if you do not get reconciled to God, that will take your life forever. That's what belief is. That's what belief is. This is belief that places faith and trust for victory, for victory, true victory, over the only illness that truly leads to death, eternal death. That contagion is unbelief. That's what that illness is. And that virus just keeps on spreading. Westmount, this is for all of us. This pandemic relates to all of us. And so we check our heart like Martha needs to in this account, like Mary needs to here. Remember, Jesus asked Martha. He didn't turn to an unbelieving follower or any of the scoffers. Everyone he turns to in John 11 is one that would profess to say they follow Jesus. He turns to his followers. He turns to you that have been with Jesus, that would say you follow Jesus. You've been in Sunday school with Jesus. You give your life for Jesus. He turns to you and says, do you believe this? Do you believe this? If it is true for followers then, amid that pandemic of unbelief, how could it be any less true for us today, in this pandemic today? Beloved, I ask you this resurrection morning, where you're looking for victory over the grave, I ask you, do you believe this? For many of us, Krishna, for you right now, I know you feel this tension. I do. Maybe today you're stricken with the same illness. Do you remember of a certain father in Mark 9? What did he say? For some of us, we have this thing memorized. He said, Lord, I believe. 
help my unbelief. Maybe that's you. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And in times of illness like this, on days like this, on seasons like this, again, when the world is in chaos, you yearn for a checkup, right? Because you know that disease still affects you. That remnant of the flesh still clings, as we've studied in Galatians. Of course, for us at Westmount, that spiritual checkup that we need, that important self-examination, that weekly memorial, is the Lord's table. In so many ways, that's our DNA right here at Westmount Bible Chapel, is it not? That's who we are at Westmount, every week, going to the table. And I know, I know you're missing it, Westmount. I am too. We are missing it. We are missing coming together and breaking bread together. In some cases, there would be no more fitting week or passage to remember for that heart examination. And some of you are wondering why we don't still find a way. Maybe some of you Westmount members have wondered, why don't we still find a way to do this? We can do so much else virtually. Why can't we do the table virtually? Well, to answer that, and as the elders sought wisdom in that recently, we seek help from God's word, 1 Corinthians 11.20. One of the great passages of the Lord's table says this, when you come together, when you come together. Clearly implied in 1 Corinthians 11 is a physical coming together. Listen, friends, it goes without saying, there's no live streaming in the first century. When you come together, seeing, being together, being, sharing space with each other, the things that we cannot do right now, As much as we're thankful for vehicles to be together in this season this way, we're thankful for them. It is not the same as physically being together. I know you know that. We all know that. You've told me that. We agree. And so, until we can gather again, until we can, in the spirit of God's word, come together again, we wait and yearn to break bread together as one reunited chapel family. Won't that be a great day? I'll tell you right now, as I look out on an virtually empty auditorium, I cannot wait for the day when you are sitting in those seats and we can break bread together. That's what I can't wait for and I know you yearn for it too. Until then, we as elders, I want you to know, have talked about this and we have no problem in the small church, if you will, in your own home, husband and wife, even just you, right? In your home, physically together with those under your roof, if you want to break bread, you have our full endorsement to do so. But of course, it won't be the same until we gather again as a big chapel family. We gather those ways and in this way, all the while longing for the day when we can come back together again and celebrate and remember the reason why we do believe. Because, loved ones, our illness has been cured. Our unbelief has been cured. And that illness has been defeated in the risen Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this reminder In this chapter, John 11, that illness has been defeated, not through medicine or a vaccine or a social distance, Lord, but it has been eradicated only because of Jesus Christ, only because of his power over the grave. And God, this Resurrection Sunday, we just celebrate that great, great truth, that wonderful truth, Lord, that you sent your son into the world to take on flesh, to live the life we couldn't, to lay down that life, to take on the penalty of our sinfulness, to take our place, to be crucified, to die, to be placed in a tomb, dead as dead, but on the third day to rise again and to give us not just life after the grave, but eternal life forever. God, on this Resurrection Sunday, we just praise your name. So we sing, Lord, of that great, great truth that is only found in you alone. And it is to his glory we pray. Amen.